everyone and welcome to another episode of the Waffling Tailors. Um, unfortunately, you've only got one Waffling Tailor this week. Um, Squidge is not well, unfortunately. Uh, he's had to take some time off just to, to repair and, uh, and, and get better. Uh, he's not, it's not the, it's not the horribleness that's going on at the moment. It's just he's got a tummy bug and he'll be back soon. <laughs> so it's a bit unfortunate that it's today because we've got with us a very, very special guest. It's Greg Burnett. How are you, Greg? Hey, hi, Jamie. I'm quite good. I'm looking forward to this. Hi to everybody out there. <laughs> it's fantastic to have you on. Um, it's it's not often that we get to talk to, uh, I want to say, big names in the industry because like you've had this huge career spanning what from the 80s until now. So that's 1890, 2000, 2010, 2020. So it's quite a long time that you've been uh, working in video games and storytelling and designing entertainment things. So you know, it's it's quite interesting to be able to sort of uh, sit with you and talk about that illustrious career. <laughs> Normally, you'd say you're just interviewing an old bloke, but anyway, thanks for that. <laughs> experienced, experienced, experienced. That's yeah, right. The uh, I'm the journeyman, you're the master craftsman. That's how it works. <laughs> that's it. Excellent. Okay, uh, so yeah, so we're going to be talking to to Greg. Um, we've got. We've got some uh, questions and topics lined up. He's got an impressive set of titles under his belt, and I really can't wait to talk uh, to him about them. So for some of the people who are especially sort of my age in the, the well, I'm sort of in my early 30s, Squidge is just, you know, in his, his, his early 30s as well. And uh, that sort of uh, age group, I think, will most know you from the, the Discworld series, but obviously Folks who are a little bit older may remember you from some of the C64 and, uh, and those kinds of titles from the, uh, from the 1980s and into the early 90s. And then, uh, I think you, is it, is it right that, have I got this right? You worked on, uh, is it Ghostmaster as well for the Xbox? Yes, Ghostmaster in, in Oxford in 2004 and five, whatever. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So it's, it's a huge amount of different technologies that you've, that you've worked alongside and with, which is, I just realized I've said exactly the same thing alongside and with is kind of the same thing, but apologies for that. But yeah, a huge amount of different technologies that you've worked with and you've seen essentially, if you don't mind me saying, the, the video game industry sort of go from the early days up to, you know, the, the bleeps and bloops and the uh, sort of 2D, not necessarily the monochromatic, but the 2D, maybe 16 colors all the way up to the super HD days, <laughs> you know, where it's like we're in the uncanny valley, right? <laughs> yeah, well, in, in in those sort of terms, I can. I started in games when everybody said it was a fad and it wouldn't last. Ten years later, they were still saying it was a fad and it wouldn't last. <laughs> and I was actually in India a couple of years back, um, working over there and teaching over there. And all the parents of the Indian designers and programmers were saying it's a fad; it's not going to last. And I was saying I've been through this. <laughs> I went through this thirty years ago. Um, and, and in terms of the beeps and bops and things you mentioned, the irony is the even before the Commodore 64 and the Ataris and the Vic-20 and stuff, that there were coin-ops, you know, the coin-ops the, from Space Invaders, Pac-Man, whatever. They were, you know, the classic sounds of beeps and bops, and, but they were all what we call single mechanic games and, and you, you know, just games you put, you put money into and you see how long you can play, basically. And those sort of games in the last half a dozen years or 10 years since mobile phones have become big, have made a comeback. You know, you're seeing similar sorts of things, although people don't seem to realise that they're just reinventing the world. But those sort of games are really popular on mobile phones and things these days. So it's full circle. It's always full circle. That's it. So what you're saying is maybe another 30 years we'll be uh, 
playing really long form video games on our on our smartphones as we're zipping around the cosmos or something. If we connect to our phones, <laughs> we might have more high tech then. But what I'm definitely saying is games are no longer a fad. I mean, they've Ooh. taken over from film, from from literature, from everything. They are no longer a fad. Oh, definitely. I, I would say maybe after the 70s, they weren't a fad full stop because yeah, no, like if, if you look at like the way that video games were marketed in the 80s, it was like, hey, kids, watch this cartoon. Now go buy the video game. So it was they were gearing up very quickly to overtake entertainment, I think. And then titles in the 90s, like uh, I'd say maybe, I think it was GoldenEye 64, GoldenEye 007 of the N64, outsold the movie by a magnitude of 10 or 100 or 1,000 times just because it, you know, it was that big, right? So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Video games are not a fad. And uh, people who say that they are deluding themselves. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, well, in, in, in terms of our selling the, the original source, like even in 83, when we released The Hobbit, well, well in, in the United Kingdom and Europe and Australia in particular, but possibly worldwide, we actually sold more, because we bundled The Hobbit book in with the game, we sold more copies of The Hobbit book those years than, than the Tolkien Estate or Anwen Hyman, who were the book publishers, I think, sold. So even those days, games had a bit of clout in terms of marketing and licensing. Excellent, yeah. I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? You've got this this hot property that you want everyone to uh, to, to sort of imagine. Imagine you're trying to play The Hobbit, but you don't have the background of having read it, right? You're going to want to read it to understand what's going on. Maybe not the, the main storyline, but it's maybe some of the minutiae that goes alongside it, the, maybe the characterizations and stuff. Totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. I do like that as a uh, using video games as a way of uh, of selling um, other things. You know, uh, gets a bit kitschy at some point, but yeah, it's uh, totally uh, totally a wonderful thing. Um, so, um, if it's okay, Greg, can we kind of start relatively near the beginning? I know this is something that comes up a lot when people talk to you, but uh, you know, the folks who listen to our show may not have heard the story before. So, could you give us an idea of like how you got into the video games industry. I know you said there, you know, people were saying it's a fad, it's a fad. So how did you get into the industry and how did you sort of tell those people, hey, it's my career, leave me alone? <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't think I ever worried about the people saying it was a fad, but it was a good pioneering industry. But basically, from my point of view, I, I actually, before I went to university or during while I was at university, I applied to to the Australian Film and Television School over here, which was in those days it was quite a a, a big sort of thing in Australia. It's where Mel Gibson and all the all the famous Australian directors and actors of the Peter Weir and all those guys um, went in the in the seventies and eighties. And, and so I applied there, and, and and they actually wrote back to me and said, "Before you apply, can you get some?" Exp- world experience because you haven't done anything yet so i was doing science and i like you know i those days computers were just really starting off i I bought an atari 400 computer um and started programming that so um there was a company in melbourne a studio beam software which also owned the publisher melbourne house in the united kingdom in london we had, had an office over there and i actually was aware of beam because they were the distributors of the Scott Adams Adventure International Text Adventures, which I used to go and to their place and buy occasionally. 
so anyway, to cut a long story short, I, I they have, they were advertising for a for a programmer. I um, applied to them, went in with my demos on the four hundred Atari four hundred, and, and got that position. And um, my first job in the this is way back at the start of the eighties, nineteen eighties, was um, basic games for books for the Vic twenty, then the Commodore sixty four. Now the the irony was the. The original games in those days, we there was a couple of, I, I believe you're in Leeds. There were a couple of kids, Cliff and Mark Ramshaw, I think the names were in Leeds in, in the UK, who were 14 years old at the time, and th- they were writing all these basic games really quick, and they were sending them to us and saying, and we said, well, we'll turn them into a book. But I, and it was my job initially. My first job was to take their games and make them work, and and um, just add a little bit of polish and whatever. But to be fair, I mean, they were doing a great job, just a couple of kids in Yorkshire. Um, anyway, so we, we did the first one on, on basic games. I, I, to this day, I, do, I just don't know how, they, how these books were so hugely popular, but people love typing in because non-programmers these days, if you ask a non-programmer to type in a, some code, they make so many mistakes with missing semicolons and typos and things. But here we had people who'd never seen a computer typing in, spending a day typing in in basic this game and then happily playing it. So that was the first thing. And then Melbourne had, or Beam had just um, released their, their hungry, the first Hungry Horus game. And um, so I then ported that from the um, Spectrum to the Commodore 64. That was my first programming project. Um, then there was, I think, a port of Horoscope Skiing, which, or sort of a dual development of Horoscope Skiing on Spectrum, which I did on the Commodore from the Spectrum again. Then I, I said, I'm going to, I want to do an original title. So my first original was Way of the Exploding Fist, which was basically the first multi-move um, beat 'em up on home computer. That's probably the title I'm sort of with Discworld. One maybe that's something I'm most proud of because it, it sort of become a benchmark for those sort of games and it, and it was incredibly successful both market wise but also just in the industry and in, in, in if peers and everything and it was a, it was a fun experience too even more to the point it was a fun experience um, doing that title and that led on to Rock and Wrestle which was sort of to do something totally original like there hadn't been a wrestling game at all then. Not even in the coin ops. Like with Exploding Fist, there had been sort of multi move karate games, one or two in the coin op in the arcades, but not on computer or console. Rock and Wrestle was the first sort of wrestling game. And um, and during that time, I also in parallel, I did um, two versions of The Hobbit. The first one, the cassette version, and the second one, we added art. We hired an artist. I'll tell you about that story later on, probably, but. Um, like in the early days when I started, everything to do with games was programmer. Nobody knew what a creative director, a designer, an artist or a musician or anything was. It was all, in terms of games at least, the programmer did everything. You did the art on graph paper. You did the audio using ADSL waves programmed into um, programming directly into the sound chips on the Commodore or the Atari or whatever you were using or the Spectrum. Or even if they didn't have a sound chip, you're just toggling, toggling a speaker on and off, um, whatever the case may be. Um, and you know, so the programmer did absolutely everything. 
tell, I can tell you one story. I, I, rem I actually remember the day. It was some. Oh, I don't remember the exact day, but in it was in 1982. Sometime I was we're in a meeting, and I actually said, I'm, "I will swear to this day, I must be the first person in Australia to say this." I said, "Why don't we hire an artist?" Because everybody <laughs> looked at me like I was mad. Why would you want to hire an artist? I said, "Because a because I'm no good at drawing art, and b I hate using graph paper to." do a pixels and see you know, doesn't that make sense that we have incredible art and um, so we interviewed initially we got lots of sort of people from advertising industry sort of artists with portfolios but then we got some some good guys from um, some good people from colleges just graduating and we're excited to do some new stuff with pixels because obviously nobody had experience using D-Paint in those days or, or Melbourne Draw we had our own package so you know once we got artists on board and you know, the whole thing expanded. But anyway, that's the early 80s sort of covered there. That's that's awesome. I mean, you've mentioned a whole bunch of stuff there. We've got uh, – we did have – I think I've lost it somewhere. I did have a question from uh, from friend of the show, G, about uh, the Horace series of games, but I seem to have misplaced it. So that's a failure on my part. <laughs> but um, if you – like looking back at – you said there were a whole bunch of stuff about, uh, you know, the programmer was in, in charge of doing everything, right? You programmed the sound chip, you programmed the graphics into the system by quite literally, presumably, you've drawn it out on graph paper and then you're saying, right, okay, um, pixel number one, you are set to red, pixel number two, you're set to green, and then working your way across the screen, right? I mean, in the 80s, maybe... I think maybe 320, 240. Is, is that about right? Or yeah, yeah, the Commodore, I think it was 640 by 320 or 640 by 480, something like that. No, 640 by 320. Well, uh, mm. Vic 20 was 320 by 160, or whatever. They were, they were in that range and mm. um, sort of before VGA and yet the sprites. But it was, it was more well, on the graph paper, it was more you just converted it to hexadecimal. You know, you just convert mm. each... Um, each pixel was a single bit. Eight bits would become a hexadecimal thing. So, um, sure. which I didn't care about that. But it was, you know, even drawing pixels in an eight by eight grid, an artist could do a better job than I could at creating something. Sure. As these days with icons, like well, the icons are a bit more substantial these days than eight by eights. But when they were in that, you know, thirty-two by thirty-two or under category, the art once you'd tell. So yeah, I mean the Horus games were that first batch, the three Horus. Well, Liney did two Horus games. The third one was only on the spectrum, Horus and the Spiders, as far as I believe. Okay, it's interesting though that uh, so we talk we talk about in sort of modern development, we talk about we split the team up into lots of different specialities. Right, uh, in games you've likely got engine developers and tools developers. And, you know, level designers and, like you said, artists, sound people and music people, they're two separate things. Maybe a physics team, maybe a team that just looks at if it's a shooter, maybe looking at how different guns operate or if it's um, a platform game, the way that the physics works on different characters and stuff. So it's interesting that back in the day, that I suppose there were no engines, right? You would write all of the code from scratch. Is that is that the case? Uh, Certainly in the 80s, the, the first engine, I designed an engine for the adventure games, the Discord ones in the early 90s. But prior to that, each game, you, you would reuse code. If you're, I mean, if you're a good programmer, you would structure your code that, so that the um, subroutines and that could be reused across things. But there literally were, and, and I know 
people who were these sort of pro- literally were programmers in the 80s who would the first thing they would do is they would fill up all of memory on the computer with if or 6502 with ea which was no op then they would just execute all of memory so they'd just start executing and wouldn't do anything because it was all just no ops and then they would start putting code wherever they liked in memory and it was just putting in machine code they weren't using an assembler they weren't let alone a compiler or anything they were just basically typing in hexadecimal machine code like if they wanted to load 69 load 69 into a register they would go load a which was a zero i think with you know hexadecimal of 69 or something and there was a lot of people doing doing that sort of um, programming. Um, even one of the guys who did something for LucasArts way back in the early days was programming like that. Um, so engines, yeah, the programmers were my favourite term is on the coal face. We're all everything was on the coal face back then. Um, these days, the biggest issue is not many people, and there isn't any any sensible team wouldn't be very much on the coal face unless they had their own engine with their own programmers. But if you're using Unreal or Unity or Crytek or whatever, your coal face is going through the Unity or Unreal maze and getting that working the way you want. Um, you, you're a couple of steps removed from the hardware. It's probably not as exciting. I don't see it as exciting for programmers as it was like... You know, if you were going to if you were going to ask, you know, would I rather be doing it these days or or, or in the past? I'd rather be doing it these days, but I, I much preferred the programming excitement of the past, where you were pioneering, you're on the coalface. And like when I first did the both the Atari computers and the Commodore 64, there wasn't any manual. You, you just uh, poking numbers into video chips and sound chips and see what they do. And occasionally, the whole you know, machine would blow up, literally. Um, and you, and you know, we weren't. I didn't do any hardware reverse engineering, but at Beam, we did. Our, our other, some other programmers were excellent hardware engineer reverse. You know, they could do reverse engineering by hardware, and that's how we did dev kits for the NES, for Nintendo, and Coleco, and and things like that. But most of the computers, you could software reverse engineer, like the Commodore and the Atari and stuff. So that that, that was what I liked doing. Yeah, uh, in my sort of day-to-day work, I am a .NET dev, and a friend of mine calls that pretend programming because most of the hard work you know, in Bunny Quartz is done for you. The memory management, the, there's a bunch of libraries and classes and all kinds of things. You need to talk to the internet, you just put in maybe two lines of code and it's doing the communication for you, which is wonderful. But uh, I've actually taken a step back recently and started playing around with a, uh, a Genesis software development kit and that's been loads of fun, sort of stretching myself with the uh, the C uh, language and trying to figure that out. So I could totally agree that uh, getting getting to grips with the slightly older way of doing things, not the older way of doing things, the the actual hands on the hardware is so much more fun. It's fun, but it's also slightly infuriating because you get to a point where it's like, oh, um, why isn't this working? I have literally no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no idea because some chip isn't documented or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I yeah. If I, if I was, I mean, I'd still today you can do huge games with huge effects and everything. So that's where the action is. That's where I'd rather be. But I don't know. I, I even what you just said there, the issues you might have with Unity or Unreal or Crytek or whatever is just a maze of searching through forums and and stuff and and. Whereas if you were, you know, reverse engineering some hardware and it was just you versus a video chip, I found that much more achievable and fun, actually. And even if it 
you know, if you started pulling your hair out, it was just you versus it. It wasn't you with these layers of programmers and engines between you and it. You never know whose problem it is or whose fault it is. Um, the way that I kind of explain it to people is it's imagine you have five different people between you and the thing you want to do, right? And it's one of those five people that's broken. Or it might be the person at the other end that's, that's somehow broken, right? Imagine the sort of bureaucratic red tape. You know, you've passed in your, say, your tax return or whatever, and it has to go through six different people to get to the person who needs to deal with it. Well, it's one of those people has somehow um, caused it to, to, to fall over or whatever. So yeah, that hardware abstraction, the software abstraction is a great thing because it gets you started really quickly. But when it falls over, boy, does it fall over. <laughs> yeah. and, and even the, the, the biggest, I mean, I, I enjoyed all the stuff in the past, but the biggest, because even if you had constraints, you didn't know they were, you know, because you had no reference point in the past, you know, I mean, you didn't, everything was new. Well, certainly in my past, everything was new in the pioneering days. Um, but the thing, even then, the thing you did know, even though you had no reference point, was that some things took a lot of time, like assembling and compiling in those days on cassette or whatever. But even today, when we do cloud builds and things, people are, they just take so long. But that was the one thing in the past I did know was an issue. Like I can Good example for me, it's one I remember quite well. I was doing the final um, master uh, a, a sort of version of the Hobbit, uh, the first version with the what we call the um, simple graphics, which were line draws and fills, like each, each screen on the original Hobbit graphically was under 128 bytes. So you can imagine how simple they were. They were just lines and fills, but they all look, some of them look really incredibly nice. But anyway, that version was on cassette and I was doing the final version to before, it, you know, fixing a few issues before we could send it to the tape manufacturer, tape duplicators in the UK, I think in London. And um, this was coincidentally in 1983, that it was the night or the day in America, but it was the day that Australia won the first America's Cup from the United States, which was a big oh. yacht, race over, yacht race over there. Now, it was about midnight or one o'clock in the morning, they started the yacht race. And just before that, I started what I was hoping was my final build, my final assembly on the cassette. Now, they finished a five-hour yacht race in Australia won, but they finished that before my, my assembly did. And, and we, we had the thing of the Australian Prime Minister in the morning over. I remember it because he, he was a famous Prime Minister of ours. He used to be a bit of a barrack and always drinking and, and carrying on. And he, and, and he basically got drunk and he went on TV and he said, any boss today who sacks you know, their employee from not turning up at work is a bum. And I've been there all night working on this thing. And, and um, so I didn't, I didn't appreciate it. But, uh, it was, <laughs> but that was the, the thing, the time the time it would take to assemble stuff on cassette was just off the scale. Oh, sure, yeah. If you make a mistake, like if you make a bug like these days, well, maybe not so much these days, but there was a period when programmers first started using makes and compiles and, and ways of doing things, and, and you'd see some programmers would literally make just compile something and make hundreds of mistakes and go away and fix them. If, if I made one mistake, one assembly run on The Hobbit, it could take five hours to hit that mistake and then I'd have to start all over again. It was crazy. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we talk about in sort of modern development, closing that development loop. Uh, I was talking to Squidge about this the other day, actually, because he was asking about 
what do breakpoints mean? And I was sort of talking to him a little bit about debugging. And uh, yeah, tightening that dev loop is like the amount of time it takes to get from I have just typed the code to I can run a version of it locally or on some kind of hardware device that I have to hand, right? And I can't, I don't think I can imagine a five-hour build time. <laughs> well, see, that's the point, though. It wasn't actually what we call a build these days where, you know, it's sort of if some files haven't changed, that they, that they don't need to get rebuilt or whatever. They just get linked together. But um, back then, it was one sequential piece of code, basically. Started at the start and kept assembling or compiling all the way to the end <laughs> every time. I can, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine that. But sort of, it takes five hours to get from it's running locally to I have some kind of binary that I can deliver. That's uh, that's amazing. Hmm, long. Wooden, clearly quite magical. Here, it's got a knob on the end. So we, we've talked a little bit there about the, the hardware resources that you have at the time. Um, one of the things I want to point out is that I feel that with your, with your canon of video games, you were almost constantly pushing what the hardware could do, right? Uh, you talked about with um, Wave of the Fist, uh, Wave of the Exploding Fist, sorry, and uh, Rock and Wrestle. These are game genres that didn't exist effectively until you kind of came along and went, but why? Why can't we do multiple attacks for for different button combinations or different um, you know joystick movements? Why not, right? Let's see what we can do. Because I think you hinted there that you didn't realize the limitations were there because you had nothing to compare it to. But uh, how, how did you go about that? Was it just a case of, hey, I wonder if I can do this thing? Oh, look, it works. Or was it a case like a like a deliberate look around at what's already there and go, right, this thing is, you know, the, the, the other games, like, uh, I guess, Karate would have been around at the time. Um, karate. You know, this is, yeah, but it yeah, was only karate. a couple of moves. It was sort of repeating the same thing. Yeah. It was on the Apple, yeah. Um, yeah, well, the, the whole industry back then, as I, as I keep saying, was a pioneering time in the early 80s and you were on the coalface and you were pioneering. And you weren't just pioneering games if you created a brand new game quite often you were creating a brand new genre with that game um but also i suppose i even though i was in australia i was being with beam and melbourne house where we were sort of more part of the uk scene than anything and with the uk magazines and uk fans and in those days um, certainly in the UK, the the emphasis was programming tricks on these machines. Like everybody wanted to do the, sm the fastest, smoothest scroll. If it was Andrew Braybrook saying Iridium or something, he did a really nice scroll. Everybody else would want to copy that scroll um, or put the most sprites on the screen. I think I'd possibly hold that record at the end in my last Commodore game, um, Bedlam. I just put eight sprites on every scan line re reset them all the time so there was you know, 128 sprites or something at some point on screen on a on an eight sprite piece of hardware but th there was things like that which programmers were keen to sort of show off and contest between themselves and the fans were really in that like the game mag reviews the early reviewers and the public that was the one thing they were aware of there wasn't the great phrase those days like great graphics or great eye candy it was wow great scroll or, or you know the amount of sprites on screen that was where it was at ironically it soon got surpassed 
once we let those artists in and they started doing fantastic artwork, well, you know, suddenly people started looking at that. But um, before that, it was all, all programmers doing their tricks. And, you know, you were pioneering stuff and trying to stretch the machines. And it was, it was fun stuff. And, and also the, the game, you know, styles and genres like Exploding Fist and um, Rock and Wrestle and, and games like that, we were, you know, creating the first things, the, the first games of their type on these computers, sometimes in the case of Rock and Wrestle Dragon Sex, sometimes full stop, but certainly in the case of Exploding Fists on home computers. So, yeah, it was just a pioneering time and it, it was fun. It really was. Excellent. Um, so with that, then, the, the, there's a lot of people who are, I've seen a lot in, in my circles, the circles that I sort of float around in, in, especially in the development and the homebrew areas, I've seen a lot of folks who are looking back at some of these slightly older systems and going, huh, I wonder what it would be like to maybe even port something or just create something completely new, right? I was wondering um, how you feel about that. So like I I recently read an article about someone who had taken, I think it's Ghosts and Goblins, Ghouls and Goblins, um, for one of the Amstrad pieces of hardware and essentially reverse engineered the code and then rewrote it <laughs> to actually make it performance and make it more fun to play and increase the graphical fidelity and stuff. I was just wondering, um, how do you feel about these folks going to going back a step to the to the older hardware and actually creating new things for it or just sort of exploring? It sounds good. Um, I, I probably because most of the most of the game ideas that I have these days are quite big. I need the new hardware to be honest. But in the single mechanic stuff. Yeah, you know, the simpler stuff which is suited for those machines that these days are also is also suited for you know phones and iPads and things. But in theory, it's sounds. It, it, I mean, for the very reasons I've been saying, it, it's one person usually, one indie person who can do a little bit of art, do a bit of programming versus a machine. And even though the machine's totally well documented these days, it's still fun. Um, and I, I certainly would recommend people who want to get onto that, you know, there's the term coalface again, be on the coalface with something that and have fun with it. That sounds like a great thing to do. Possibly not on my side so much. I'm, I'm, I lived in that era. I played those games. And to me, like people ask me, because quite often I don't play retro-looking games, like if they're, if they're extremely blocky or whatever. And people say, well, why don't you, you know, give that game a shot? Well, I said, um in my day, those graphics looked like HD to me. Like that was the the state of the art. And and it's a big disconnect to play them now when HD is HD for argument's sake. Versus, you know, in my day, HD was three twenty by one sixty, and we we didn't know any different. And it looked great. And it was good, but it doesn't really work for me now. It works for me as a, as an art statement or as a as a piece of retro art or whatever. That works really well. But if you're asking me to play an RPG or an FPS with blocky graphics, I'm probably not going to do it. So, you know, that's just my take on things, I'm afraid. No, that makes perfect sense. I mean, when you've, when you've sort of cut your teeth in that technology space and seen it grow, you're going to want to perhaps stay in the sort of modern I don't want to say more contemporary. I mean, that's kind of the same word again, but in the contemporary sort of arena, because yeah, it looks pretty or, or whatever. You, you maybe don't have the same nostalgia that the players may have. Um, if you are the creator rather than the player, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I mean, if you are, 
if you are used to being at the cutting edge of the coalface, that coalface constantly shifts in this industry. So, you know, it's great and it, the nostalgia is great. And I, I really love and appreciate the nostalgia and the old games and everything on the Commodore 64 and the, even the, you know, the old Atari 2600 or whatever. Um, but, you know, if you want to do something state-of-the-art, you've got to get on to where the technology is. And unfortunately, unless you're an incredibly gifted indie person or small team, that usually means working with a big team these days. And by big team, I mean big team. Sure, sure. That, that totally makes sense because otherwise, how are you going to innovate so fast? And how, like you were saying about Unity and uh, Unreal and Crytek, you may need that many people just for the experience of using the tools and to be able to, quite frankly, go to someone and say, hey, you haven't got anything to do or you haven't got as much to do. Can you literally Google this and find out what the answer is? Yeah, but, but people also, I mean, don't get me wrong, the the big teams have a huge downside. And unless you happen to be the person in creative control or something, you're really a cog in a massive machine. So for people who want to do their own thing, be original, what you said before about doing something on, on one of these older machines would be great because that means you're in charge of it. You, you've got more chance of becoming your idea and your your piece of art or your game or your vision or whatever than you have if you're part of a big team doing Far Cry 5 or, or whatever. That's not going to happen. So I suppose it, it, it's the dual thing I'm saying. I'd like to – I would love to do the biggest, best-looking games you can do today but it's really hard if you haven't got the, the creative um, input or control of that particular product. Whatever degree that your creativity or your control is coming from, whether you're an artist, a programmer, a designer, or whatever. So th- there is a downside to it. Sure, sure. That makes sense. Uh, yeah, you need that support team around you to be able to produce that high-quality content as fast as possible, and you're not going to be able to do that if you're one person, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, th- there's... Literally, the you know the company I was with in India, we had almost three hundred three D artists doing game stuff. Um, and they, imagine just the number of people, and they were working on big games, a couple of big games. But you know, you're talking about teams. Literally, there's some teams of up to eight hundred artists doing stuff for some of these mega games these days. That's just way off the scale. That is, yeah. I, I tend to uh, work with. Or rather, alongside teams with maybe five to six people, so I can't even imagine what three hundred people looks like. <laughs> it looks like a lot of people doing <laughs> and a lot of machines. But anyway, yeah, yeah, and then sort of managing that, I can't even imagine what that was like, right? <laughs> so, um, talking a little bit more about your uh, career, then, um, with the all of the games that you've had a hand in making, either you were the sole programmer back in the day because you know that's how it worked or you've worked as part of a huge team um are there any that you which were your absolute favorites either because of the work that went into it or because of the end product or because maybe the team just worked really well you know are there, are there some that or maybe you know whilst you were maybe playtesting it you were like ah yes this is it this is this is perfect are there any that, that stick out immediately as uh, as favorites oh well it's always obviously way the 
Boating Fest, it was always the, the favourite, even even after even back then, I could see it was probably going to be a favourite for a long, long time. But more for for the reason, not so much for the well, it was one of my it was my first original project. Probably wasn't the first one with artists, but we did use these couple of artists we employed, and they did an incredible job. Greg Holland and Russell Comp. Russell, actually, we employed him. Back in India, a couple of years back, after I hadn't seen him for about twenty-five years, but um, yeah, no, the, the team was good, but and and the audio guys, um, Neil Redden, who was doing all our music and stuff, it was a good team. But the thing about Exploding Fist was it, it was the first game I did my way, rightly or wrongly, which caused a few issues. In in that I in in those days I was a programmer, or I suppose I was more a designer, but I you know, we, we didn't know that term existed in those days. So I was a programmer. Um, and I enjoyed programming to be fair. I didn't find it too particularly hard. But the way I tend the that the way I like to work and the, because by the, that stage of beam I, I had this sort of, you know, the goodwill stored up, I could do things to a certain extent how I wanted. So I said I you know, we'll do white explaining fists which will be a, a martial arts game, a karate game, whatever. And so I designed that game out from scratch. I, I then basically did some structural diagrams like three-dimensional flowcharts, I suppose, and then I, I even pseudocoded it in a sort of a Pascali pseudocody thing before typing it in this in assembly language. But the point was I, I never really did a playable version until I typed in all the code for the two-player game, forget the AI, throw that aside, but for the two-player game, basically the first time I saw anything working was when I did a, a, an assemble where I put everything together for the two-player game. I had, I had the art, I had my collision testing, I'd worked out a system, I had all that in, and I and so I went from absolutely nothing to a two-player game. And the thing I always re- remember in that, I, I was pretty happy. I assembled this thing and it worked. I mean, it didn't crash, it, and it actually worked, and there was two characters on screen, there were two joysticks, and you could... You could move them around and you could do moves and you could hit each other. So I, I was pretty happy. I was going to, so I went away to make a cup of coffee. And I come back five or 10 minutes later and there was a queue of people at my desk, literally a queue going around the corner, queued up to play the game. And, and, I, and I said to the MD at the, at the time, um, Alfred Milgram, who was the head of um, Beam Software, the original founder, I said, he, he said, well, it looks like we, we got a hit with this one. I said, well, yeah, if that's any indication. But th- that was when you know something was good, when the you know y- your people in the office are, who were pretty jaded were, were playing the thing. So Exploding Fist was good like that. It, it, um, it, and it took after that, and the AI was okay. There were a couple of issues, various things, but it, it took off and was well-received and so on and so on. Beyond that, in in that period of time, it was, you know, the, the team at Beam. Obviously, you know, in those days, there was hardly any other teams down here in Australia. So we had the best programmers, best artists, whatever you could find in the game industry. We literally had with us, and even our UK office had good people. So the team was good. Um, and then when I decided to branch out of Beam with the then head of our our English operation, Angelus Sutherland, we founded Perfect Entertainment in, in the UK, in London. We, we got some really good people there and, and, and did Discworld 1. And that was a great, a really good team. That was a great bunch of people. Both in, we, had, we had the main office in South London and we had a, the main programming office for the engine, at least, was in Manchester, and we had a small team in Sheffield as well for programming. But across the UK, and it was the good thing in the UK, it wasn't all based in London, like there were teams in Leeds, Liverpool, 
Leicester, um, Manchester, obviously, everywhere. It was, it was very flat like that. It, that was always the big thing over there. Like anywhere else, you had to go to Melbourne or Sydney if you're in Australia or Mumbai or Bangalore if you're in India or Berlin if you're in Germany or whatever or Tokyo if you're in Japan or whatever. But in England it, it was and Scotland, it was really good that there were teams everywhere and good people everywhere. So, yeah. But Discworld was after Wave Exploding Fist, it was certainly Discworld 1 because that really – was a great team for slightly different reasons. A great team. I enjoyed the way we got the product. We can talk about that if you are going to ask Discworld related questions. Everything was really, you know, it was really interesting and great, and it worked out really well in the end on that particular thing. So that was something we're proud of too. Awesome, awesome. Because yeah, the, the, there are a lot of games that you've worked on uh, throughout the through the sort of canon. Um, of you know, Greg's canon of games. So it's great to hear that there are so many, that those two specifically, you know, uh, with Exploding Fist, which really pushed the the envelope for home PCs. And of course, you know, you, we both talked about Discworld a little bit. I am not a cartoon. I'm just dimensionally impaired. You know, um, Squidge and I are huge fans of Discworld, so if it's okay, I've got a couple of questions about yeah, that sure. first game. Oh, excellent. I, I know that it comes up a lot, um, and hopefully we're not going to cover too much of the same ground. <laughs> I'm co- <laughs> covering the same ground. That's when you cover ground I'm not used to. That's a bit tricky. Oh, well, fair enough. <laughs> so um, there's a question that I have around the, the sort of the story of the first game. Um, you know, the, so because I'm a huge fan, um, I recognize the story elements from different, from the different books. Um, was it a case of, uh, let's just translate this one book and change a few character rules? Or was it a case of, I think I can come up with a vaguely sort of a, a vaguely, uh, crossover story from this book and this book if we tell it from a slightly different perspective? What was the, sort of impetus there or was that more of a or was that more Pratchett saying no we're going to do it this way or, or whatever did you guys have full creative control uh, yeah no, no um it's interesting your take on that it's sort of there are elements which are correct but what really happened was um when i spoke to terry first and i actually had a game design anyway and that's how the i think it was yeah before that now, what I did first was I, I did a game design and then we approached Terry and, and, and he, he sort of signed up a deal based on the game design, And but I'll get some more of that later on. But in terms of the approach, the first thing Terry asked is, well, can we do, can we start with book one and then do book two? And I said, no, I'm not interested in any particular book. I'm interested in the whole Discworld world. I'm not going to use everything at once or whatever. But And, and I actually told Terry, even you all get sick of it, if we did, one book by the time we'd done two or three books you'll be sick of it too but um but no the approach was to uh, to license the whole world um which included everything up to whatever point we were now don't get me wrong and think that that just means the characters like Rincewind and the guards and by that point there was only one guards novel i think and you know, the, effectively, Terry started, you know, breaking his own books up into lines, the guards line, the witches line, Rincewind, and then there was a couple others later on. But the main thing initially was 
um, I wanted the world, and, but I wasn't going to use the whole world. Like the first game was always going to be mainly in Akwapak, but I didn't want any restrictions and on, on Akwapak, and and I also wanted to be able to use any characters, even though the first game was always going to be about Rincewind. I, I wanted to use the guards, the witches, if need be, and death or anybody. But when I say I wanted the whole world, I didn't just want characters and locations. I wanted the sort of the story points. So I, I didn't use the story from guards, guards, or moving pictures or whatever, any of that. I used some of the story points because I like the story points. And, and the reason guards, guards sort of become a bit of a focus to a small degree was that, in, in my opinion, it was the first of Terry's books that, that had a really convoluted and strong plot because he was more of a storyteller. He would sort of start at point A and tell a story. He was a great storyteller. But it, at about the time of guards, guards, and he even spoke to me about this afterwards when I actually brought it up with him, and he agreed that that was the time when he started doing a lot of forward planning and sort of structuring his books a bit. And it, and it made it ideal for some of the stuff I wanted. So some of the ideas, like the secret cabal of, of people from the town, from the town of Akmorpork, you know, summoning a dragon, obviously they come out of guards, guards. But um, I didn't use it in the same... I, didn't, I tried not to step on the toes of guards, guards in any particular way, but it, it was always, how are we doing it in a parallel universe? But we sort of were doing it in the same time and universe as all the books. But we, um, I was trying not to step on any of their, their toes. But the point was, I you know, definitely was using anything I wanted, but I was doing it in a sensible, what I considered a sensible way. Like I didn't just want to throw everything in the first game. So the first game was like Warp Wolf. The second game spreads it out a bit in the third game. Well, the, the irony is by even, you know, has anticipated even by the third game, Terry himself was saying, well, can we do something new? And I said, well, can, I said, well, can I do something totally new? I love film noir. Can I combine film noir with your fantasy world? He said, sounds like a great idea. Feel free to. And um, that's how we went to Discworld Noir with the last one. But, um, yeah, to go back to your original point, it was sort of take a bit of the – just use the world. But, uh, you know, I wasn't going to do a totally original story – well, the original story, but with with some of Terry's story points, was more the way to go. Sure, that totally makes sense because, like, if you created a one to one of one of the books, then anyone who's read the book will be able to just fly straight through it and go, "Well, that was kind of boring." Be- well, not boring. That wasn't as engrossing um, because maybe you didn't take it in this direction or didn't take it in that direction. I- I'm all for um, ad- adaptations that deviate slightly from the from the source because it gives the creative people a chance to sort of take it in a slightly direction slightly different direction or um figure out well what would this character do or what would this situation how would this situation play out if you know we we talked about you talked about there about um, a cabal of people um, summoning a dragon right which is essentially spoilers for the guards guards book that's kind of yeah. the point of guards guards right but I like the idea of a cabal summoning a bunch of uh, a bunch of people summoning a dragon, but it's not the police force that figure it all out. It's this wizard or, or this, well, yeah, this trainee wizard who's terrible at what he does, just sort of almost fumbling his way into figuring it all out, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It always had to be Rincewind in the first game because he was the iconic character. Obviously, that changed, you know, has 
Terry's books went along, but in the early days, he was the iconic character, so it was always going to be him. That was one thing I was adamant on. But I mean, Terry was happy with that as well. Terry was actually incredibly easy to work with after we, uh, you know, after we got, got to know each other. You could talk to him on a creative level, and he loved that sort of conversation. His only concern at any time was to make sure you didn't step on the fans' toes. Like, even he changed, or, or you know, if, Fans had misconceptions about things. The misconceptions usually become the reality for Terry. He didn't bother arguing the point. If he released a book with some, you know, pun or some particular hidden joke which people didn't really get but they took it too literal or something, well, he didn't mind. He just changed and, and adapted. His main concern was that whatever the fans wanted, the fans got. And I, I seem to remember the only thing he, he, he was adamant about it and had its own email when I actually mentioned an Elven Queen once he said if we use an Elven Queen her hair has to be raven black I didn't care fine and that seemed normal enough um, that's the only <laughs> point he ever asked for it was quite adamant for some reason the hair of the Elven Queen but it, all you had to do was protect all the assets all his assets and show respect to them and treat them not so much with him in mind, but with the fans in mind. That was the mindset you had to have. Sure. I mean, that makes perfect sense, right? You, if you, if the original creation was specifically for the fans, uh, it's going to be the fan, the, the, the immediate audience is going to be the fans of the original content, right? They're going to be the ones who shout out the most about, oh, this is a brilliant translation of the universe, or this feels like I'm watching the book play out. So you want to target those first and say, hey, look, you know, and you want to uh, respect the wishes of the original creator, which I suppose is is a great position to be in if the original creator is still around and can uh, put some kind of input into it. But I guess like, uh, you know, things like the, the, the sort of the classics, like the Jane Austen books, the that kind of thing, or uh, excuse me, or like Tolkien now um, can't have any kind of creative input into how someone adapts his books to the big screen or do a video game, which essentially is the big screen now. <laughs> so having that sort of extra creative, um, what's the term I'm thinking of? Like a creative consultant that you can say, Hey, we're thinking of doing this. What do you think? You know, that, that, I think that's a great idea. Oh yeah. In, in Terry's case, it was superb. He, his titles, he, he actually requested them. His credits in the games were sprinkling fairy dust and throwing stones from afar. So that was the two credits for the first two games I think he took. And, and, and they sort of were actually accurate. The thing that he did, he would take the entire dialogue script, like he, the story and, and the puzzles I got approval from early, and, and there was never any issue whatsoever with the story or the puzzles. Whatever I did, he seemed happy with. And, and he, he always asked if he could edit the dialogue. And it, I didn't do the dialogue. I had a dialogue. I did that. And, and I'll give it to Terry. And... You know, the first game had, I think, about 5,500 lines of dialogue, and the second game had, you know, 8,000. The third one had 20,000, the, the Discord and Wild one. Now, he went through every line of that dialogue and, and tweaked it or, or, you know, changed some of the conversation. He didn't change them in, in game context too much, but, he, you know, he had free run of that. But he did some – but he, he made his own dialogue in a lot of cases, which I always found incredible that he was – he just – 
you know, in his own schedule between writing books, he would sit down and, and go through 20,000 lines of dialogue and, and just, you know, he, he didn't just read it. He made changes and he tweaked it and stuff. So it, it worked out really good and, and he was incredibly involved with that sort of stuff. He, he didn't mind what I did on the puzzle side so much because he knew I had that under control, but he, he just loved um, providing some icing on the cake or fairy dust for the dialogue. Yeah, that's a, it, it's no joke just how busy his schedule was. I've, I've talked to other people who had met him and they'd said, oh, yeah, he'd have had two or three books on the go and would be publicizing the book that's out. And then obviously, you know, communicating with people like yourself or uh, back when there was the, the prospect of a TV show and a couple of movies, communicating with those folks as well and, you know, exploring all of the different licensing options. So, Oh, yeah. And playing games. He played every first-person shooter out there. So <laughs> he, was, he was keen on games, too, on first-person shooters, at least. Um, but, yeah, no, no, he, he, he was involved in everything, and it, it, it was incredibly good to work with. I mean, it was a, it was a good time working with Terry. Um, it, even how we ended up getting the license was interesting in that regard. Like, we... Like, as I said, I did a design and, and we took the design to Terry and he looked at it and he said, yeah, okay, we, we, we can do a handshake deal based on this and the, 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 then my agent can work it all out. And that's how we went. And and we signed up the deal. And and after we signed up the deal with Terry, we actually contacted Tierra Online who had done all the, you know, the King's Quest games and the, those sort of games because we wanted to work with a publisher who knew adventure games and could handle them and so we, we started doing the product with them we used we, we started using their engine only what happened after about six months going into it is that they were leaking money everywhere and they and they was they were having big issues so they closed down all third all third party games including ours um so we sort of took everybody back to our office in the UK and and we put an advert in the Trade Weekly CTW, I think it was at the time, which was the Computer Game Trade Weekly. That's probably what it, what's the CTW stood for, Computer Trade Weekly or something like that. Um, we, we actually put an, we put an advert in it saying publisher required for Discworld graphic point-and-click adventure game. And uh, that day, we got a couple of calls, one from EA and one from Psygnosis. Um, I think there was a third call, but I can't remember who they were from. But anyway, EA came in the next day or first, and they looked at it and they said, yeah, it looks great. We'll, we'll, we'll get back in touch, which was nice. And Psygnosis came in a couple of days after that, and they said, yep, um, but we're not going to leave this office until we get the deal. So that they were keen, super keen, and they seemed and they were really nice. So, so we we get we signed up with Signosis. So it was it was actually about three months later that EA came back, that their lawyer came back and said we're ready to sign the deal now. <laughs> it's a bit, bit late, but um, Signosis actually asked on the day how we got the deal, but because they said that they'd actually been in touch with Terry, had had EA and other people, and offered him a lot of money. And I said, I didn't offer him any money at all. I just offered him, I just gave him a game design. That's how we got the deal. <laughs> that seemed to sum the whole process up. But that's how you work with Terry. I mean, I found that afterwards that, yes, indeed, most of the big UK publishers had been there with big checks in hand and he'd just ignored them. So, right. so it worked out really well from our point of view and it was a fun time. Yeah, that, 
That totally makes sense. It feels like perhaps from that perspective, he wasn't doing it specifically for the money. He was like, what can I, who can I license these things out to who are going to treat it with respect? They're not just going to see it as a cash cow, right? Yeah. It was all about respect. Don't get me wrong. He was incredibly um, over the money and everything in those areas. But before he would talk money, he had to know that you were going to show his world, his creation, respect. That was the whole key. And if you went in, and if you're in your own time, you took the time and effort to create a design or do something, and then show that to him, that was going to get you a lot more kudos um, to then just walk in the door for big check because he had to he had to reassure himself that whoever he was dealing with. Well, it could become, because literally he saw it as becoming part of his Discworld family. Like he had people who made figurines up in where they were actually in England. Many have been up there. It was a farm somewhere, but they, they made all these incredible figurines. He had all these little groups of people all around England doing little Discworld things, merchandise and stuff. But they're all sort of part of the family. They're all people who were fans and they and they started up cottage businesses, I suppose, based on Discworld. That become successful. And that, that was his sort of thing. If, if you were part of the Discworld family, you had to be part of it and you had to respect the fans and, you know, respect the... Thing. And that, that came natural to us, to me anyway. So it wasn't an issue. Sure, that uh, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, uh, so whether speaking more specifically about the, the sort of the game and the design, um, was there a specific scene or a specific puzzle that you can think of off the top of your head, if there are any, um, that you were the most proud of? Like, oh, I totally get this is really stupid. Collect these four items do this silly thing. Like I remember, I think it was in Discord 2, there's a part where you have to sneak up to, you have to sneak up to a vampire who is asleep, steal his teeth, put them in your mouth, bite onto a mouse to get to get the drop of blood to be able to do some kind of sacrificial thing to to talk to death. But it, but the the vampire had lost his teeth because he'd gone off of blood and was, drink, and was eating lots of jam. It's like that whole setup is just ridiculous, but perfectly Pratchett. Like, yeah. Was there anything that you threw in there that, that you remember fondly? Oh, I had heaps of fun with all those puzzles. And also taking the out of adventure game puzzles, like when you started off by saying, you had, like the, the obvious ones in those days, if you played King's Quest or anything, were, or any games where people would, you know, collect a key, find a key to open a door, find four items to, you know, if we fuse together, we'll... Yeah, get you access to the next point. So, so I used to love taking the pit out of those particular sort of puzzles. Like I, I can remember it wasn't my favourite, but I had one, the only puzzle in Discord one that used the key was the key. I, I'm, I'm just remembering now, so I might be a little bit wrong in the way, but I'm pretty sure the key starts where it's meant to be. Like if, if there's a door and there's a key not far away and you go to pick up the key, but a, a bird grabs the key and then the key gets further away and the key ends up after all these things off the edge of the world. You've got to get a big fishing rod and actually catch it off the back of the turtle. <laughs> Yet it started off literally in your hand. That's I just wanted to take the fun out of it, this key concept because I was sick of games and keys. Um, but in terms of, I don't know where it's my favourite puzzle, the most notorious puzzle in Discworld one was one of the cabal members, the fishmonger. You had to each cabal member, if memory serves, you had to get a. I had to say you had to get a gold item, and if you look, work up to the fishmonger, he had a gold belt buckle around on his belt around his waist, and he he, he was he he had this big caviar. He, he had for sale, and he had he had 
and and he was also quite attached to a mackerel, if memory serves. He, he was quite, he was, you know, quite you know, attached in in a, in a very amorous way to his mackerel. But um, he, anyway, the puzzle was you had to sort of work. You could work it out by trial and error, or you could actually pre-think it. And the interesting thing with the Discworld puzzles, because you know there, there have been websites in those days, and even since that, have said Discworld one is the hardest graphic adventure game ever for puzzles. And the irony was for Yes, for experienced players, for some reason it was hard because instead of going A, B, C, D, they'd always seem to jump in and C or D. But I, I had the Discworld fan base was huge and it included quite a few older people who'd never played games. And I had quite a bit of correspondence from people all around the world saying it was their first game and that they had no trouble playing it because they just they just followed the trail of breadcrumbs all the time. They didn't know that they could deviate. They didn't make any – they just – even though it was incredibly convoluted, they just followed it the way it was set and it worked out well. So we had so many first gamers going through it with incredible ease and, and so many experienced um, point-and-click adventure players getting tangled up in knots um, over it. But it is hard. I mean, it was meant to be hard. and Some of the puzzles are, you know, are quite convoluted. But they, the one about the fishmonger, as I was saying, you – the end result, I'll just cut to the chase because I can't remember all the steps to go through it, but basically if you – because he kept eating caviar, I think, which look, if you got a prune and replaced it and put in the caviar, he would he would, <laughs> he would need to go to the toilet, which was nearby, and he'd go to the toilet, he'd pull his pants down. You see under the door that he's got his pants down with the belt buckle, but if you try to grab it, he pulls it up. So in the end result, you had to – you. You, I don't know, it was, it was an octopus that, that he was quite amorous with. So you, you get the octopus that he's always making eyes at and you put it in the toilet and then he goes and sits on it, but nothing happens. So you get some love potion custard from the house of negotiable affection where some amorous <laughs> witch is plying her trade or something. And you put that in the toilet. You put the octopus in the toilet. The guy sits on the toilet and he gets molested by this octopus in no uncertain terms. And while that's happening, you grab the belt. And hey, presto, you... Got one of the puzzles. It's simple in... in hindsight but that was a notorious one which people had a lot of trouble with um getting the belt buckle of that but but there was also i, I just enjoyed all the crazy puzzles you could, you could do anything like even um i think i think in discord one it was the bar or the the um pub they had you know you had to play that old distraction game with somebody where you know look at that picture over there and and then they spin the they spin the table and the drinks around and then they say, look at a picture over there, and they, you turn and look at it, and they spin the spin the drinks around on you. So you had to get one more picture up on the wall, otherwise you keep losing this battle of spin the table. And the only pictures that the the it was clear from the pictures that the the barman, the um, owner of the pub, had on the wall that he he had a thing for animals in footwear. Like he, there was a pig in stilettos, and I don't know, there was all sorts of weird stuff going on. But anyway, you had to do the classic English thing of take a picture. You had to figure out how to take a picture of a sheep in gumboots or Wellingtons <laughs> to to put on the wall. And that was a story all unto itself, and, and included some interesting um, things that we had to put in some disclaimers that no harm was ever done to pixelised sheep in this game and stuff. <laughs> but, um, it, 
it was just a great – the puzzles you could make in the – and this is the thing that even before I got – the biggest thing about the Discworld universe was, to me, it, it, it just – I saw – when I just looked at it and read a few books, I saw thousands of opportunities for incredibly bizarre puzzles and, 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 and they're mixing in all the Python stuff because Eric Idle was, was – um, Rincewind and and um, mixing in all the other English humour and everything I could put in there. It, 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 it was an incredible opportunity to do some weird and wacky puzzles, and they worked out for the most part. As I said, some were incredibly hard, but so what? <laughs> yeah, you've got to have the uh, – you can't have an adventure game, a point-and-click game, without a few hard puzzles, right? Because if they're all easy, you just think, what was it that I, I said to That's someone boring the other day? they're easy. It, yeah, right. it, it is a hard line to to toe because obviously you don't want people stuck in it, and that's why the quest sort of had multiple strands, so there was less chance of getting stuck at one particular point. Um, I had to think of all that stuff, but and also try to include references from pop culture, and not just Discord. So puzzles had references and things. If you've seen the Terminator in those days, obviously in the eighties it was Terminator and Lethal Weapon and stuff, they were all referenced in the games. And if you you know if people had seen them they would make sense of puzzles quicker than if they hadn't and so on and so on. Yeah. I do remember um there's the wonderful scene in the in the beginning of Discworld Two which feels like it was lifted straight out of a Lethal Weapon movie where Yeah yeah Lethal Weapon Two the the Oh, the animation budget's increased at least. Well, of course that's a good thing. It means they haven't spent as much on plot, doesn't it? They've probably halved the number of insane object puzzles for a start. <clears throat> Sorry, I mean clever, natural thinking exercises, of course. Trust me, I've been through this sort of thing before. <laughs> Which is a wonderful little you know, stab at the... Uh, the camera, breaking the third wall also became a... Th- Thing in Discworld 2. Discworld 2 also had a screensaver, which I don't got used, but, but there was a funny story with that. Our, one of our audio guys, Mark, had, had, had um, been working on the Discworld audio and, and he had finished the, and the game. I don't know whether the game had even been released, but he, he, he sort of had this running through his head. And he, he must have went home and he, he fell asleep and, and, and he heard knocking on his t- TV, which when he just before he was falling asleep, he said it was just white noise because it was on, on the BBC or something at three in the morning. And there was knocking on his TV and Rincewind was knocking on his TV from the inside, <laughs> which was actually the screensaver in Discworld 2. It turns out that the BBC children's show first thing in the morning were doing a promotion on Discworld or something. And they opened up with, with Rincewind knocking on the TV and now poor Muso guy, Mark, he, he he literally had a heart attack because he thought he was in a nightmare land of been working on this and suddenly it's in his TV. Because he didn't, he didn't even know that trailer existed, that we had that. So it was quite bizarre. Wow. But, um, yeah, weird stories and weird characters. It, it was, doing an adventure game, a, a comedy adventure game is always fun because you can do so much weird and wacky stuff. He can't tie his shoes, but he can classify microorganisms. There's one for the education system. I do remember, um, it's a few years ago now, I discovered a random um, a random blog article somewhere from 
uh, from someone who said, you know, if you if you pixel hunt in certain areas. So uh, for people who don't know, pixel hunting is literally move the mouse across the screen very slowly until the icon changes and click it, right? So if you pixel hunt on a bunch of different screens in the first game, you can get a scene where Rincewind says something like, I want to be the first person in a video game to say the word or something like that. And it's bleak, it's not right? it's just, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I can tell you that story, but it's not <laughs> That's interesting. I'm trying to remember that pixel because I think that that wasn't in the first release. Might have got added in 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 a in a rebuild because there's there's a big story behind that whole thing. Um, basically, in recording the audio, we went over to LA to to record Eric Idle in this studio and uh, over there and. And he had he had about five and a half thousand lines, or not? No, there was five and a half thousand lines in this one total. He had about three and a half, four thousand lines to, to do when he it was become a long tiring day. And anyway, at the end of the day, I, I asked Eric, and, and I said, "Look, this was after Graham Chapman's funeral in England. It happened. We just recorded not long after that. And at Graham Chapman's funeral, I think it was John Cleese, but I'm not sure who it was, and said, I want to be the first person at this funeral to say." If I can say that on your show, or you can bleep it anyway. Um, and I said to Eric, I want you to be, can you say, I want to be the first person in a game to say, F-. and Eric, he was happy to do that after a tiring day. And he, but he turned it into this big diatribe about, oh, you know, I'm going to be the first person, to, forget about F- Arnie Schwarzenegger, I'm saying it and I'm doing this. And he just went crazy and he did it all. And, and it was interesting in the studio that, that the, the assistant audio engineer was this intern and she was only young and, and she had her hands over her ears and had a, her face was red and everybody else was on the floor laughing and, and um, apart from her but it was quite funny at the time but anyway we we took our five and a half thousand samples I took those and, and we, we put them all out and I forgot completely about that particular thing I, because the idea had originally been we had, I had so many ideas for this world one but the the, the big idea originally had been to have manufactured or canned bloopers at the end starring Vince when, you know, and stunt doubles and all these mistakes with pixels and things. And But it, 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 we didn't have time in the end. Even the game got released with bugs as it was, so we didn't have time to fix everything in the first version. But um, so that didn't happen. So we had these five and a half sound samples. Now anyway, I've forgotten all about it. Then I was, I was in the office about six months later at about nine o'clock at night and somebody said, uh, there's a woman on the line who wants to talk to whoever made Discworld. I said, okay, well, she's lucky I'm here. I'll talk to her. Um, and, and she said, look, I'm, um, I, I bought this game for my son today and he's, he played it for about an hour and then it crashed. But when it crashed, this is what happened. And she said, listen, and she put the phone to the computer and it was an infinite loop of Eric Idle sort of to say, <laughs> I want to be the first person in the game to say, F-. and it was going on and on and on. It wasn't stopping. And, and, and I'm thinking, well, what are we going to do here? I, I'll, Give her a copy of every game we've got. We're us, Cygnosis, to give a copy of every one of their games. We'll look after her. And she, you know, and she, and, and she come back to the phone, and I was about to, you know, offer her the world, and, and she, and she got the, you know, and she got an understanding of what I was trying to say, and she said, no, 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 don't worry about it. I just wanted you to hear it. I think that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, 
And, and I think after that, because that brought it back to my attention, I think at some point we, we turned it into a one of those hidden pixel things, as you said, but I, I can't really remember that. Or that could have even been done by the programmers just as a, as a side thing. But it, it sort of got brought back to my attention at that point. And certainly in the sequel, it was Interscore 2, it popped in somewhere. Yeah, I remember there's um, there's a sequence that you can do because Discord 2 has this tiny element of um, a little bit of time travel, I think. You go to see the, the elves and it takes you back yeah. in time and they're falling in time and you know, that kind of thing. And if you do no, it's that... It's in the library, it's in Elspace, yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. But if you do that sequence in a specific order and then go see the elves, I think, then it takes you back to a scene that is rendered in the same graphical style as the first game. That's correct, and yes, yes. Rincewind and Rincewind have a discussion about being the first person in a video game to say the word f***. That's it. <laughs> that's, it. That's, that's the one, yes, yes. All right, then. I want to be the first person in a sequel to say f***. Anyway, nobody wrote in and said they'd heard it in the first game. It must have been too well hidden. Yes, we certainly liked it. I like making things complicated, but yes, that was the one. <laughs> so if people didn't find it in the first game, take them back and, and have the conversation. Yeah, uh, the good yeah. old days. If only we could do this sort of stuff in the, what we're doing today. Exactly right. But um, so we do have a, a community question from um, a friend of the show, James, who creates a show called The Cynical Developer, and uh, he's asked with regards to Discworld Noir because you've sort of brought that up a few times because obviously it's part of that Discworld canon. He has said uh, Discworld Noir was written by Chris Bateman and went in a completely different direction. Um, was that, you, you've mentioned earlier on, you were a big fan of the Discord, of the noir films, and you said to Terry, can we do something in a noir style? Was that you completely just handing off creative control, or was that you working alongside Chris to come up with something? How did that sort of come uh, Chris came on during um, just the end of Discord 2, I think, it, and he's an incredible game designer. He ended up getting a PhD in game design and stuff and t- teaching all around the world. And he's, he's got incredible technical game skills. No, no, but, but, in, but in reality what happened was I, I started the, the, the story and the ideas and, and, and the key puzzles and things and then worked with Chris, who, who, who as I said, he expanded it in, in a big way, um, added quite a bit of story, added all the dialogue and... Um, added all the puzzles and things. Obviously, uh, um, if we needed more comical puzzles, I would have done them. He was more into more real-worldy sort of puzzles, I suppose, or, or you know, more non-comedy ones. But the game was more of a horror detective game, so it didn't need my particular craziness, to put it that way. And and, and, it, and I was supplying all the film noir stuff, like half the puzzles and half the story elements were based on classic 30s and 40s films. But people might not even know that. I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, not many people would have been Discworld fans and film noir fans. So it was a, it was a hard thing. But that, that didn't, you know, it didn't really matter, I suppose. But so yes, we did take a different direction, and it was it was the, always the idea because even at that point, as I said, Terry had seen the first two games and and was thinking, well, do we do we need to do a third game? And I said, well, we don't need to do a third game, but Perhaps if we do something totally original, um, create a totally original story in your world, um, we, we, you know, and, and even the characters, most of the characters will be original as well. And we, but we'll just um, – it, it, so it was almost like we were doing 
the Discworld Noir book, like if it, it almost assumes Terry had written a book about the classic detective story of the 40s or something. Uh, and, and we're doing a game on it, but we effectively did the book part first, I suppose, ourselves. Okay, that makes perfect sense. I mean, yeah, if, if, if it feels very much like that Python idea of, and now for something completely different, which makes sense, right? If you've, if the folks creating the product or the property are starting to see that maybe it can do with a breath of fresh air, you create that breath of fresh air, right? You take it a completely different direction and see what happens. Yeah, you know, that was the idea. But, but I also have to say that as far as, from my understanding, the fans of the games would have been happy with just more of the same. I, I mean, I didn't want to do more of the same either. But in reality, I think the fans were happy with the the comical, cartoony adventure games. So that's where I think they were extremely happy with. So we also had to sell the change in direction to the fans. That was a harder sell to them than it was to Terry, I would think. Sure, sure, that makes sense. I mean, if you provide something that everyone's used to and then you go, well, guess what? We're changing it completely. Then, yeah, everyone's going to go, oh, uh, is this something that I really want? Totally appreciate that. But, uh, yeah, the, I, I can say that all three of them were, were very fun to play. And, uh, yeah, the, um, from my point of view, as having not so much experience with the, the old noir movies, um, the third one didn't immediately jump out as this is madcap and silly. And, you know, there were plenty of jokes and puzzles that, you know, fit perfectly. It was more dialogue based, you know, that wasn't, yeah. and high level parody wasn't the slapstick craziness of the sure. first two games. Sure. Um, and if I was so, going to do another Discord game, I would go back to the crazy. I, I, I keep it interesting and, and a, a big story and it always have to have some comical elements in it though because the, the, they were so fun to do and they worked out so well so, so that was that was going to be a question i i didn't say we do so um some inside baseball talk we send a, a planning document over with some questions and topics and stuff but uh one of the things that just sort of came to me was assuming now obviously this is me just asking just asking a question to the ether i'm not trying to tie you down or narrativia down or the estate of Pratchett down. But if you were to, to be able, if you, if you had the opportunity rather to uh, create a new title in that sort of Discworld um, arena, that, that canon, that universe, would you have gone to the more slapstick or would you have found a slightly different thing to parody? Because like the way that I see it, the Discworld noir game sits rather perfectly within the idea of the books because a lot of the earlier books are like uh you know um the the first few discord books are literally parodies of the types of books that were out at the time so it kind of makes sense that you would have at least one entry in the series of games that was a direct parody of something you know like discord noir was very much parody of the uh, of the noir films whereas the first two games to me felt just like oh i'm literally playing through what could have been a book, but it's animated yeah, it and stuff. So, uh, yeah. Well, in terms of, I actually have spoken to Terry's daughter about Discworld, and he he sold all the all the licenses on before he died, unfortunately, to ITV and BBC and everybody. And then they've been trying to make TV shows and things since. The the only thing I'd be interested in is the guards and doing a a procedural detective comedy based on the guards you know 
CSI meets Sherlock Holmes meets Discworld. Uh, and it, it could be a really good game, only uh, I don't think it'll ever happen because everything's in sort of um, limbo in terms of the estate. But who knows? It would be a good thing to do one day, if possible, and I'd certainly be up for it. It'd be a, it'd be a good experience doing a one, one more Discworld game, one final big Discworld game. Sure, sure. Uh, I have to say that would be right up my alley. Um, I'm a huge fan of the the gods, the the whole series of the books there, and all of the characters. So, yeah, I, I know what you mean about the everything's kind of in flux because at the time of recording, there's this uh, TV show that they're making that is the uh, I think it's called Discworld The Watch, and yeah, the watch, you know, yeah. from a fan perspective, watch. it's got nothing to do with the actual characters. Or anything, you know, none of the characters from my point of view even are vaguely related to the book version, you know, and uh, I, I could go on a whole tirade about that, but we don't want to turn this into the let's not watch the watch uh, podcast because <laughs> I could do that for hours. Oh, um, is it actually being made? Is it actually being made? I thought they're in sort of development hell of all that stuff. Oh, it's yeah, actually- it was for, for, for a very long time, but uh, I think it's BBC America. Just before, so in 2019, in the summer of 2019, they started filming this this thing, um, and it's being it was being filmed in I think South Africa, um, and you know there's a bunch of characters in there that, from what I've read of it, it feels like they took a script for an existing story and then just did Control F and changed all the character names. <laughs> Seems bizarre if you're going to do the guards. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's unfortunate. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah. I could do a really good game on the guards. It'd be, it'd be just what we need. But anyway. <laughs> oh well, maybe, maybe sometime in the future we could uh, somehow get that going. I don't know. Um, but uh, so we've talked a little bit about your uh, entire career, the the canon of of games, right? That you've worked on. Assuming that you could somehow summon up an unlimited. So, assuming budget isn't a problem, assuming licensing isn't a problem. What would be a? Are there any licensed products out there that you would love to make a title from? Um, again, I'm not trying to tie you down to anything. I'm just like sort of looking at the sort of stories that you like to tell, sort of thing. Yeah, no, I'd honestly have to say the boring answer is no. If I had all that money, I certainly would, I'd be doing an original game. Um, but even even if licensing did become involved again, it'd be a world thing or a um, from just. I, I can't think of any, you know, even even if you look at all the big obvious um, universes that people use for film and games these days, whether it be Star Wars or DC Marvel or, or anything like that, um, or or even Harry Potter or, or whatever, um, it, it wouldn't interest me to any great degree um, I, because all the ideas that I have these days tend to, tend to rely on their own world. But if I could marry it up to a... You know, if we could, if, if we could spend all that big budget and license a whole country, a small country somewhere, and just use all their, all their geography, all their people, and and everything for the one game, that might be interesting. But in terms of an actual creative license that somebody's made, I can't think of anything that, that because these days we've almost gone to the 180 degrees where the game comes first and everything else comes second. Um, so it's almost you, you almost need to be asking film and book people and comic people is if there's any 
games that they want to turn into a film book or comic that, that that's probably a more pertinent question these days than what you, you know the question i've been asked quite often back 10 20 years ago is what would you like to turn into a game these days i think we've gone 180 degrees we're beyond that that makes so, sense. I mean, sorry but it's a boring answer in that regard i just can't think of anything that i'd like to turn into a game no, that, that's that's fine. Uh, it's not a boring answer at all. It actually it kind of reinforces something that we both talked about earlier on in the in the episode, and that is that you know games have become the big thing, right? It's less about movies these days. I can't remember the last time that I got excited to go see a movie from the trailer, but we now have teaser trailers for the trailers for the events to announce the release of a video game, whereas Back in, you know, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it was, oh, there's this huge movie coming out. Oh, and there's also this game that's coming out for, you know, Nintendo, whatever, right? Whereas now it's, look at this amazing game made from the film. And then they go, what film? Oh, that film over there. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. That's, yeah, whatever. (laughs) I think you're absolutely right. It's games are now bigger, right? Yeah. And we've actually seen full circle and some things. When I was in in Oxford in 2004, I had a team up there doing Ghostmaster, and one of the other Empire teams were doing a game based on the German film Run, Lola Run, which that German director had said he'd done the film based on a game. (laughs) They were getting full circle stuff going on back then even. Um, But, yeah, these days games almost come first um, in, in some areas and then but having said all that we still you know other than golden i suppose you mentioned way way back at the start of the conversation there's been few games made from films or something that have been of any note so um i mean obviously i had the the um hobbit made from the book and that which was to critical acclaim stuff but in general in terms of more arcadey games and things you know, beyond Goldeneye, these days I suppose there's some other things around, but that was the one that stood out quite early and, and not much since. Sure, and yeah. films made from games were even worse. So. <laughs> <laughs> People remember That's... Mario with Bob Hoskins, whoever it was. Um, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And stuff, but yeah. Yeah, those two medium haven't married too well as of yet, but one day they will. Yeah. I've always said to people that if you take the the film license out of the movie, whatever movie based on a video game you're watching, if you take the film license out, you're likely watching a relatively good, silly movie that's great for some kind of like if it's a family movie like the Super Mario Brothers movies. You know, it's a it's a fun family adventure, slightly sort of cyberpunky adventure. But then you throw the Mario license on it, and it all goes wobbly, right? <laughs> Yeah, even though Mario is an incredible game, if not one of the best ever, uh, certainly Mario 2. Um, but yeah, but that's just the way it is. That's true, that's true. Oh no! Look! It's horrible! Hang on a minute, it's me! Rather handsome looking chap, isn't he? So um, what does uh, the future hold for Greg then? Are there more 
Um, are you working on anything at the minute? Are you working with, obviously don't say who you're working with and what titles and stuff, but is there anything coming down the pipe? Are you more teaching these things? I don't think they might either that matter. But um, <laughs> uh, in terms of games, I'm, I'm not specifically in games at the moment, although I'm sort of in the process of turning what I am into into games to a certain extent. Um, what I'm doing at the moment that there's this small but incredibly talented team in Melbourne who do VR and AR sort of um, procedural and artistic sort of work installations um, programs whatever but their main project is for is for Deakin University it's a it's one of the big unis down here in Melbourne or outside of Melbourne this is in Geelong actually um, where their campus is and they have a product um, which is a VR product which trains firefighters but it's the best thing out there in the world in this regard it's full hardware based people get into a proper firefighting suit with a respirator and um that they have a proper fire hose and it's connected to a winch so that when you when you turn it turn it on it, you really feel it pull you back and and it's our job it, in experiential productions where I work to create the software that drives that, the scenarios, and, we, you know, in the process. And I was basically brought on as a producer to try and, I suppose, turn whatever chaos there was into order, although I probably only added to the chaos, but who knows. But quickly I saw that the most interesting thing for me was to start designing these scenarios and doing a bit of creative direction and, and you know, turning what we're good, what's incredible hardware and incredible software. The guys have done an incredible job all round. Um, to turning that into more of a slightly more gamey or, or film experience, so that you know, firefighters are really getting fire and smoke and stuff. And that's what we're working on now. A lot of um, really putting people into these dangerous situations, and and the, the feedback's incredible. It's it's getting a good response. So. It's not sorry. It's not strictly a game. It's virtual reality training, but it's using proprietary hardware and in VR, and it's it's fun. It's doing some, we're doing some good stuff. Oh, excellent, excellent. Um, so that that's really that's amazing. Um, so with with that in mind, um, we, we we I think we I mentioned it just before we started. Um, I was going to ask you about whether you have any. Um, advice for people who want to get into either get into video games, get into programming, that kind of thing, or just look into that sort of immersive uh, arena. Is there any um, advice that you would like to give out to folks who are looking into that? Or is it just a case of... I can, I can try. It's quite it, normally, it's quite obvious advice. It is quite hard, and even these these days, more so, I suppose, with COVID nineteen and travel. But as I assume most of your audience is in the UK, it's the ideal place to be for gaming, as far as as I can tell. Because as I said before, there's so many, even even in the eighties, but these days, there's studios all around the UK, from the top of Scotland. You know, down through Wales to, to the south of England, and um, they're good studios, and, and the studios working on, you know, PC games, console games, phone games, whatever. Um, it's a full, it, you know, all the different hardware types of support in the UK. So, if you're in the UK, you don't have to move country, you don't have to move to London, but you've obviously got to try and get into the industry anyway. The same applies anywhere in the world. Elsewhere in the world, you can move around. Like even when I was in India, people in India were moving to Germany and Canada quite often and getting jobs in gaming. But the key thing to 
to do is to get some sort of portfolio, whether you're a programmer, an artist, or an audio person, or or even a game tester, um, in which case your portfolio might have to include some level design with annotations of what what you can fix and what, you know, just explaining how you would do things and improve things and whatever. But you definitely need the portfolio. You can't turn up for a job and just say, well, I've I've done a course at so-and-so university and I'm a programmer or whatever. You've got to do that extra step. Now, obviously, these days at certainly all the universities and that that do any sort of gaming course or whatever, you will come away with some sort of demo game or some something as part of the course, which hopefully is good and can show whatever you've done in that product. But even then, if first thing to do is to identify, you know, if you can, what your interest is. If you're only interested in a job, well, fine, you just try and get a job. But if you're actually interested in, say, artistic indie games where you're part of a small team who's, who's not going to make a fortune maybe, but you're going to, you know, one day you might end up winning a BAFTA or something, if that's your aim to get critical acclaim for this really great indie game, then that's a different approach to if you're wanting to work on the next Far Cry or, or Fallout or something. Um, but either way, you've got to get something in your portfolio and when you choose the sort of people you'd like to work with whether it be indie or or big people doing the big games you then add stuff to your portfolio before you do any interviews based on what they do there's no point turning up to a a studio that makes only first person shooters with with planes and guns and things if all your you know if all you've all you have in your portfolio is cartoony things or cute little things or whatever it's a total mismatch. You're not going to get the job. You've got to add some stuff, and, and they and they will appreciate that if you add some stuff based on whatever they're doing. And even because it's only for them, you can even take whatever the game there is and say, "Well, here's a character I've done for your game, or here's a level I've done, or whatever." You've got to some way get it on personal terms so that you're talking about the same game and you're not, you know, being interviewed as a person who just is a programmer or an artist or whatever. But there are a lot, I mean, it's not, don't get me wrong, it's not easy. There is a lot of courses. I'm, I'm talking more about Australia here, but I'm sure it applies everywhere. Like in Australia, there was a big um, sort of outburst of universities, colleges and, and proprietary sort of specialist schools for teaching people hands-on training for games. So you might, so there was basically thousands of people graduated, but then the, you know, the GFC app and all the, all the um, overseas publishers and whatever and developers disappeared and so basically in australia it's mainly phone games and indie games so um it's a different sort of market that there isn't really a chance for people if they want to do a big a big you know far cry or something well that's not going to happen down here but in the uk you've still got the option of any sort of game you want basically somebody's probably doing it somewhere in the uk so do your research find the people you'd want to work with um, and tailor your portfolio to match. Okay, that's some that's some great advice. Um, I have to say, I do know that. Um, so I, when I was at university, I did computer science and games dev. Um, so I have that theoretical background. But they also did this like uh, almost like a credited um, year or so of uh, let's talk about engines, let's talk about tools, let's talk about um, you know three D graphics and two D graphics, and working our way up from that using 
this will maybe date how uh, how long ago it was there as a university. We did uh, OpenGL. Now OpenGL is no longer a big thing anymore. It's all DirectX on Vulkan. <laughs> but yeah, I think. Well, what I sorry. forgot to say there, no, obviously you just brought it up, was the engines. If you're a program, no matter if you're a level designer, if you're anybody in games, do learn all about Unity. Do learn all about Unreal. Um, whoever you go to, unless they're a, an incredibly indie team with their own little set or uh, their own little, little engine, or they're you know a huge people like Far Cry doing Far Cry or something with the, with their own engine. Everybody else is going to be using Unreal or Unity, so there's no two ways about it. You've got to know them. Sure, right? It'd be like um, it would be like trying to become a I don't know a, a lumberjack without learning how chainsaws work, right? Yeah. You got to use the tool that your industry is going to be using. That makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. Um, I think uh, that's that's all the the, the questions that we have, uh, Greg. It's, it has been wonderful to uh, sit and chat with you and it's a, it's a sh- bit of a shame that Squid couldn't join us because yeah. he's a big fan of uh, pretty much every game you've ever made <laughs> so so it's a shame yeah. but you know well, if he is he probably he time. can remember more than I do I, I doubt I can remember every game I've made uh, yeah. I, I, you asked earlier the, 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 the interview list with me is always number one is Wiley's Cloning Fist number two is Discworld number three is Shadowrun that's the, the three. Beyond that, it's occasionally I get surprised by somebody asked to do an interview or, or an article on some esoteric game, but sure, that's sure. the three. Well, like I said, Greg, it's been absolutely wonderful chatting with you. Um, uh, I wish you the best of luck with the uh, with the, the VR and AR stuff that you're working on. Um, is there a way for, if folks want to find out more about that or some of the work that you're doing, what's the best way to, to find that out? Well, in terms of the VR stuff, I mean, I can, I can give you the, the the company's Flames website or something. I can I can pass that on to you. Um, sure. That's I don't have my own stuff. It's all all by yeah. them for, for that. Um, and that's certainly happy. You know, everybody's happy for them to look at that sort of stuff. Um, and if there's a you know fire department out there in Leeds who want good training, just be in touch. <laughs> That's it. Oh, my God. Yeah, I've done the sales plug. Right? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Well, we'll put the we'll put the links and details into the show notes then. So if you're interested in that, uh, click through and check that out. And I've said it about 12 times already, but I really do appreciate you taking the time, uh, Greg, because it's uh, kind of coming up on 11 a.m. here, which means it's, it's almost tomorrow there. Or I'm, I'm not no, sure. No, no, It's only 10 to 8. 10 to 8. Okay. Yeah. Time zones um, are really I, I, I wouldn't actually care if it was three or four in the morning, but my only concern is internet times. But, yeah, but no, no, that's fine. I'm not sure how many more of these I'll do. And yours is this, it, since COVID-19, I've lined up three, or people have asked me for three, and I haven't said no to anybody yet. But the next one, actually, the next one might even interest you. That was from Germany. They did some, I don't know who they are, They some German internet, channel whatever they did podcast channel they did an 11 hour series of podcasts where they played Discworld one and it was their most successful series of podcasts ever that they asked me to give a one and a half hour talk on it now on a podcast but can you imagine i I just can't imagine 
getting that many people to listen to 11 hours of playing This World One. <laughs> <laughs> in oh my goodness! Yeah, I, 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 it just amazes me that I mean, it's a graphic adventure. There's no graphics on a podcast, but anyway, I guess it just shows the uh, the legacy of that game, right? There's still people playing it these uh, in you know, whether we twenty, ooh, uh, yeah, twenty, thirty years later, right? Twenty five years later, people are still playing it, and people are still enjoying it. People are still creating content about it, and you know, one of the reasons one of the reasons I reached out to you was. Hey, we're big fans. Can we talk to you about it? And we've talked talked about it. So, yeah, it's it's a huge thing. It just shows how good those three games were, and how it was. I feel like from from an outsider perspective, I feel like it was lightning in a bottle. <laughs> you sort of captured it <laughs> in, the, in the first. Yeah, yeah. I'm, now I am sort of hoping that that, that I can do one final guard, guard space game. But after you, what you said about the um, Night watch or watch, I don't know. Anyway, I will chase Rihanna Pratchett again occasionally and see how it's going. Cool. Because I'm sure it could be crowdsourced. I'm sure there'd be a lot of support for another Discworld game. Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, the the number of fans across the world, they're always having, well, maybe not now, but they're always having conventions and, you know, I, I hate to bring it up, a Kickstarter and Indiegogo or a thing. There are a couple of successes Mostly everything fails, but there are a couple of successes. <laughs> that could maybe no, be in terms of games, there have been on Kickstarter. Yeah, in the past, there's been some big successes, um, and, you, and you wouldn't need a heap of cash to do a good Discworld game. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, it's always an option. I, I, I wouldn't mind trying at some point, but it, it's just unfortunate that, as Rihanna was saying, it was almost the last thing her father did before he so tragically passed away. Was he? Um, sold off all the books, licenses to the TV companies. Anyway, mm-hmm. we'll see how it goes. Yeah, see how that I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> we can always come back to it another time. But, uh, yeah, thank you for taking the time, Greg. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you ever so much. Just to quickly wrap up then. Uh, so thank you ever so much, everyone, for listening to another episode of The Waffling Tailors. And unfortunately, it's Waffling Taylor today. Um, and thank you, Greg, for, for showing up. Check the show notes for a link to the stuff that Greg's working on uh, these days and for a list of everything that we talked about. And uh, check, uh, come back next time for more Waffle Taylor goodness. Um, I usually sign off by saying, see you later, Squidgy. And then he'll usually say it back to me, but he's not here. So maybe you can splice that in later. <laughs> but yeah, uh, see you later, Greg. Uh, thank you ever so much. Thank you. See you later. Intro music is Among the Stars by Muse Station Productions. Outro music is I Need You Watashi no Sabate by GH. Spoiler break music is Spectrum Subdiffusion Mix by Phonics. Palette cleanser music is Breathe Deep, Breathe Clear by Siobhan Dagay. See the show notes for more details. The Waffling Tailors podcast is a proud member of the J&J Media Network. To find out more about J&J Media, head over to jayandjay.media or check the show notes for a link.